0: Thank you, Rick. Nancy. Good to see Nancy back. Glad all of you took the time to come to church. Appreciate you for making the time and the effort to be at church. Now, throughout the summer, we've been looking at uh, different trips because summer was time for road trips and I'm aware that summer is, is pretty much officially ended with school starting. But I want to continue with this because there's more trips for us to take uh, in the Word. And I think all of us have uh, realized through the last summer's uh, uh, messages as we talked about life is a journey. And, of course, life is a, a journey in that uh, our whole life can be compared to a journey. But really, when you look at life, life is really a series of, of journeys, of different journeys. Or let's just put it this way. The trail of life has different sections, doesn't it? Different sections of the trail, and sometimes they can be very different, one from another, depending on our particular station in life, uh, our stage of life, what we're doing, uh, and of course other events and other decisions put us on different trailheads, if you want to put it that way. Now you look at the sections of life, the sections of the trail through life, I think we can understand they're not always the same. Some sections of our life uh, our journey through life, uh, are easy. Uh, I would say if you want to compare them to a, uh, a trail, if you go to the uh, mountains, either in uh, East Tennessee or up in the Ozarks, and you have the state parks with trails, and you get the little map, and they will tell you on that map the condition of the trail and what kind of shape you need to be in on the trail. And it would either be easy, moderate, difficult, or intense or, no, don't even go there. But, you know, we really deal out, with a lot of times the section of trail is, is the easy section, the flat section, straight section. This is important. A lot of times on our trail through life, there's great visibility all the way around, especially forward. You can see what's coming. You know what's coming. Uh, traveling is steady. Traveling is stable. Traveling is predictable to be on this section of the trail, the easy section, maybe even moderate. You know, we may stay on this section of the road for a long time. Sometimes it is so easy, flat, predictable, consistent, we may think, my life is boring. No, your trail is easy when it gets that way because it doesn't always stay that way, but the ride is great on this section of the trail. But there will be a time, inevitably, when all that changes. Wish it wouldn't, but it does. Life becomes much like a section of a road that was spoken of several times. It's written about several times in ancient documents. Uh, The road earned a name. The name is called the Bloody Way. What a name for a road. You know, a lot of times people name their driveway or something after their family name or something, or you have, uh, you know, Pleasant Avenue Drive or something like that. This road was known as the Bloody Way. Now, this is an actual road. This is not a figurative road. It's still in use today. But in ancient times, it was much narrower. It was a very heavily traveled road between two very important towns. The distance of this section of road that was known as the Bloody Way is pretty much short, about 16 miles. Now, to give you some sort of something in perspective, 16 miles due south on Highway 79 will put you right in the middle of downtown Hainesville, somewhere right down there in Hainesville. That's about where we're looking at. If You go 16 miles in this direction, you'll have a, uh, Equally notable town, downtown McNeil, if those two words can be put together, downtown McNeil, but you'd be right there. So that's how, that's how you say, but that doesn't, that's not too bad. I think we can manage that. Oh, but you have to understand, it's not like between here and Hainesville or here and McNeil. This is the easiest stretch of road. Flat, consistent, straight, visible. This road between the two towns would take a drop of 3,500 feet in elevation. Now, I don't know if you've ever done much traveling up and around the mountains, but 3,500 feet in, in 15 to 16 miles, that's not a long way. Inevitably, with that steep of a drop, with that steep of a drop, it's inevitable that you're going to have some very steep, dangerous places. And in order to make the road not quite as steep, they'll make that road switchbacks. You ever wonder why it's so curvy up there in the Ozarks? It's curvy because instead of going straight up the mountain, which was just pretty much impossible in the early days of horse travel and even walking and now even cars, they go back and forth to make the road not quite as steep, but oh, Tramamine, they sell a lot of it because of that, because it's curvy and you switch back and forth. In fact, we were a uh, We were up in in the Ozarks one time. We were going down the the road there, and, you know, Sharon was driving. I was helping her over in the the passenger seat. We We rounded a corner, and there was the back end of a car right in front of us. I said, look out, look out, stop, and I realized it was our car. We didn't circle back around, so it was so steep. No, it wasn't quite that steep, but you know what I'm talking about. And so it's curvy and twists and turns and on this road there's a lot of blind corners where visibility is only a few feet ahead like life on this road called the bloody way you can't see what's coming we we don't like it that way do we we know something's coming we can't see what's coming we don't really know where this is going to turn out there's some parts of the road where there's dangerous drop-offs right here and on this side there's a cliff right here and the road is very narrow it is dangerous The travelers risk with every step, there's slips, falls, and sudden weather changes. Oh, but it gets worse. On this road, there's some crevices, there's some caves. And in ancient times, robbers and bandits would hide in these caves. That's why it became known as the Bloody Way. It was so notorious that the robbers and the bandits were there, and they would ambush the weary travelers. This road was known as the Bloody Way all the way up through the 1800s. Even though it was an ancient road for centuries, it was known as the Bloody Way all the way up to the 1800s, and only, of course, when modern means of road building, and they since have gone around this road, but the old road is still there. There was no other way to travel between the two cities. You had to take this road. Sometimes we have to take the hard road, the steep road, the switchbacks. It's inevitable. Sometimes traveling is not easy. Four very different men traveled this road and took their journey from the two towns. They didn't travel together, but they shared the road at about the same time. They all traveled by themselves, and of course, each of these four men had a very different journey, even though they were traveling the same road. One man's experience on this road was determined by chance, events out of his control. Three men's experience on this road, they were determined and shaped by choice, the decisions they made. Here's their story, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And we recognize it as one of the most familiar parables of Jesus. Scholars are divided, is this a parable, or is this an actual event? Because of the twists and turns of the event, many scholars think this was an actual event because most Jewish people would not believe that Jesus could make up a story like that, and they would pretty much discount it as just simply a story because the ending is so outlandish they wouldn't have believed it. Most scholars believe that this is probably the account of an actual event because this road was so notorious. Uh, Four men uh, on the same road. Jerusalem was 2,500 feet or 2,600 feet above sea level. Jericho, 900 feet below sea level. And of course, the elevation difference was uh, 3,500 feet. All of us, we had to travel, of course, these kind of journeys through life. And all of us, we'll be honest, all of us have been like, each of these four men in life, all of us. And let's read their story in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? He said to him. He answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. He said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the teaching of Jesus. We thank you these teachings were written down. We still have them today. We have them for a purpose. We ask that purpose would be seen in our lives, that, Father, you would hit us with the truth of where we are on our journey through life and how we're traveling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get into the parable, to really understand what the parable is speaking of and just kind of get the main meaning of the parable and not get lost in the weeds on some technicalities here, let's look at the question that started it all. The question that started it all is in verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so that I was asked of Jesus several different times. Realize that he was an expert in the law. Who asked this question? He was a lawyer. And when we talk about a lawyer, it wasn't just simply civil law because you couldn't separate the two in the Hebrew culture. Civil law and biblical law were just like that. They were all found in the first five books of the Bible. He was a lawyer, which means he was an expert. He knew the Bible inside and out. That's important. He knew the Bible inside and out. He was an expert in the first five books of the Bible and, of course, the other books of the Old Testament. He was a scholar. It was his job, when people had a question about life, about morals, about decisions, to come to him and ask how the law applied to their life or their particular situation. Now, get this again. It was his occupation, his life, His station in life, when I have a question about what does the Bible say about this, how should I live, how should I act, what should I do with this problem, his job was to say, here's what's written in the law. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Now, this man had a universal search. He may have been an expert in law, but he was like the rest of us. What can I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that that everyone asks because everyone has an awareness of eternity, that there is something happening after we take our last breath. Everyone's aware of the reality that when we take their last breath, this is not over. Now, I know recent scientists, not science, scientists have said, we're just the result of an accident. We're nothing but animals, and when you're gone, you're gone, and nothing after that. Oh, no, no, no. That is a new blip on the radar, put it that way. The human experience is we have an awareness of eternity, we have an awareness of a soul, we have an awareness there's something different about humanity, and that is there is something happening after we take our last breath here. And the universal search is we want an existence after our earthly experience. What's going to happen then? Eternal life. And have to understand, anytime somebody said eternal life, when we're in the Jewish culture throughout the Old Testament and into Jesus' days, they're not talking about eternal life in length. They're talking about eternal life in fullness. And so we're not talking about just what happens after we take our last breath. When they said, what can I do to have eternal life? It says, Master, what can I do to have a truly fulfilled life? What can I do to satisfy these longings and these things, the things I really need. In other words, where can I find purpose? Where can I find satisfaction and soul fulfillment in life? That's, everybody's asking for that. And so he wasn't just asking for the sweet by and by, he was asking for the here and now. What can I do that life's going to have some meaning today? That's what he was asking. And then he said this, what can I do? He didn't say that I can have eternal life. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know who inherits stuff? Members of the family. So here's what he's saying. What can I do to be part of the family of God? How can I get in? How can I get into God's family? Well, that's a search all of us have. That's a search all of us have. So the question he had was not just a lawyer question, even though it says he was this to put Jesus to the test. See how much he really knew. So we, the question that started it all kind of starts our discussion. But now, secondly, we want to look the solution that is often ignored. Now, here's a man who's searching for meaning in life. He really will to know what is life all about. So Jesus says this, what is written in the law, and what is your reading of it? Oh, this is quite interesting. You remember what this guy is. He is an expert in the law. When people come to him and say, what shall I do about this situation? He would say, well, here's what's written in the law. Now, here here he comes asking Jesus supposedly a question to stump him up. You know what Jesus does? He says, what's the Bible say about that? Now, that may have been a little bit embarrassing for this guy because he asked him, it could have been in front of a lot of people. So he wants to kind of grandstand and ask him this complicated Very deep philosophical question, and Jesus says, what does the Bible say about that? Now, he should have already known, shouldn't he, by his professed title as a lawyer. What's the Bible say about that? So, this solution is what we need to look at, in that a lot of people have made some very complicated issues out of some things that are going on in our country today. Some very some very deep questions about who we are and what we are and, and decisions people make and lifestyles. People travel down and all these things are beginning to be accepted and, and everybody's confused about which lifestyle is good and bad and so forth. And they come and say, Brother Eric, is this okay? Or is this wrong? Or is this wrong? And you know the solution? What does the Bible say about it? There's where we find it. It's, Many times it cuts through a lot of the complicated stuff that we somehow have have tried to, to wade through and we get clear, concise answers about how we should live and how we should act and what should be going on in our lives when we finally say, what's the Bible say about it? Oh, but the solution doesn't stop there. What's the Bible say about that? And he says, what is your reading of it? Now, he was the expert, but let's let's put it another way. What's the Bible say about it? And then the next thing is, what are you doing about what the Bible says? We know what the Bible says about a lot of things, don't we? What are we doing with what the Bible says? Well, he gave a very correct answer. So far, so good. He's on track. He answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, where do you find this? Well, love the Lord with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And we looked at this several weeks ago called the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It, it's, it's almost verbatim what he found in the Bible. Man, he's right on track. Here's what the Bible says. And he says, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Where is that found? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says it exactly. He knew it verbatim. He knew these passages of scripture. The very correct answer is this. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's written down in the law. That's what it says. Jesus said, you have answered rightly. Do this and you'll have eternal life. You'll have a fulfilled life. You'll live forever and be in the family. Now, he had a very correct answer to the question, but a very incorrect response to what Jesus told him, to Jesus' instructions. Look at verse 28. You've answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. Look at verse 29. But he, willing to justify himself, Said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I'm going to stop right there. Jesus said, You love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor is yourself. Now, we'll stop right there and realize I haven't done that all the time, have I? I haven't done that all the time because if I love the Lord with all my strength, heart, soul, and mind, I would do exactly what he says all the time. Does that happen? Love my neighbor as myself. Obviously that had not happened. That had not happened. There were people this guy didn't love. How do we know that? It says, he asked the question, who's my neighbor? Why would he ask that question? Why would he ask that question? Here's the reason. said he wanted to justify himself. Notice, he wanted to justify himself. You see, at this particular point, when we realize, man, I hadn't I done this, that's when we realize, I have not measured up to that. I am totally lost. And we repent and trust the salvation of God. Now, this was even true back in the Jewish day, back before Jesus came and did the work he did on the cross, where a person would realize, I am totally undone in the sight of God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. You remember the story about the Pharisees and the publican in the temple. Now, this is what should have happened. Instead, what he said is, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! I got to find a loophole because I'm I am totally toast. I am totally toast." But he wanted to justify himself, wanted to find a loophole. Now it's interesting. He wanted to justify himself, but we ask the question to who? I mean, he's dealing with God Almighty. But you know, remember, he's a lawyer, and lawyers sometimes are good at finding loopholes with things. So, he, but did he want to justify himself to the people that were all around him? Did he want to justify himself to Jesus, who he's talking to? Did he want to justify himself to God? Really, who he wanted to, who he wanted to convince himself? He wanted to convince himself. Well, I'm not all that bad. I know the Bible says this, but you know how many times I've heard that? Yeah, brother Eric, I know what the Bible says blah, 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 but and then you're going to all the other reasons why maybe that's not the best thing to do. Here's this man's response. So Jesus clears it up by sharing the experiences of the four men on the road. This man needed a little bit further education. Now let's look at these four men. First of all, we have the unfortunate victim. This kind of sets the stage for everything. The unfortunate victim, it says this. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Wow. Events totally out of his control, he suffered now a sudden emergency. He didn't plan it, certainly didn't ask for it. He was in need of the help of another human being. There's a lot of applications here, and we're going to go on and not deal with all the applications of every single part of this, but the application we look at is this. These kind of people are everywhere on the road you're traveling and I'm traveling. As I mentioned, we are all on, on a road through life, and sometimes in our easy traveling or our hard traveling, we come in contact with people who have been beat up and hurt and injured and wounded, and life is just just torn their hearts out of them. And we see these people all the time. Here was an individual that desperately needed the help and the touch of another compassionate human being. Here's how the story gets started. Now, Jesus says, now by chance a certain priest came down the road. Now, at this time the hearers would say, oh, man, a sigh of relief. Help's on the way. The preacher's coming down the road. Surely he'll help him. So we understand he didn't set the stage. He has set the stage where now everybody's worried about this man or what's going to happen to this guy. He's half dead, took everything easy. he's. There's still more robbers around. What's going to happen to him? Oh, I hear footsteps. Here comes the good guy. The priest is coming down the road. The, his job is that he was responsible for the rituals of worship the prayers, the sacrifices the operation of the worship services now if there's anybody who was familiar with the heart of God it should have been this guy his job was to express to the people the heart of God he should have known what to do but it says he just kept on walking on the other side now the next guy was a levite isn't this the same thing oh no quite different See, the Levite was responsible for the letter of the law. He was more like this lawyer. He knew the scriptures and he knew how to make sure that the people around him followed the letter of the law. These guys wanted to make sure that these people were towing the line. So he knew the letter of the law. It's quite interesting. The letter of the law said you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the other lawyer wanted to find a loophole. This guy, as the other lawyer should have known, there are no loopholes because what he's trying to say is, who can I get by without loving? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and to ask the question, who's my neighbor? Is there's some people I need to love, but then there's some other people I'm just off the hook. That's exactly what he's saying. You say, man, that's horrible. Yes, it is, isn't it? but we're a lot like this guy sometime. Let me tell you what the Bible says. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But it goes even further, further on in the chapter, it says this, if a stranger deals with you in your house, you shall not mistreat him. If the stranger, this is a foreigner, this is somebody who's not like you. If a stranger who dwells among you shall be shall be to you as a firstborn among you, you shall love him as yourself. Not your neighbor, not the one that is like you, that looks like you, that talks like you, that believes like you, that wears the same kind of clothes, all these things. He said the stranger, you'll love your, the stranger as yourself. But also it, it gets even further involved and gets all up into our business. Exodus chapter 23 goes even further, and it starts really meddling with the heart. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 4, if you meet your enemy, whoa, whoa, stop. We're not talking about our neighbor. We're not talking about a stranger. We're talking about our enemy. If you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you will surely bring it back to him again. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute, you don't know what he did to me. You don't know what he said to me. You don't know how much he hurt me. You don't know how wrong he was. And the Bible says you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, you carry it back to him. It goes even further. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would like to refrain from helping it, you'll surely help with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love the stranger in your gates. You shall love your enemy. There is no loophole. There was no loophole for him to do what he did. He came and he crossed over and looked at the guy to get a closer look and then kept on walking. Now, the priest could have said, man, I didn't notice him. He just kept on the other side. But the Levite looked at him and got a good close look at him and then kept on walking. Now, we read this and say, oh yeah, brother, this day and time, you can't be too carefully. You don't want to stop on the side of the road try to help somebody, because sometimes you know that they don't really need help. I'm not talking about stopping on the side of the road. Listen close to the application. Everybody looking this way? Both guys saw the opportunity to do something that was clearly instructed in the Scripture and didn't do it. Did you catch that? They both saw the opportunity on their path of life to do what the Bible says. And they didn't do it. Now, there's no need to look at what reasons they had. Because it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. And we can think of all the reasons why we're not going through it the Bible way. But it really doesn't matter. There are no loopholes. Then we come to the, the good guy. Now, as Jesus was talking to the Jewish people, they thought maybe the good guy would be the priest or the good guy would be the Levite. And all, the, all of a sudden, man, this story is getting more uncomfortable and it's just about to get even more uncomfortable. And he says this But a certain Samaritan, boy, then they're saying, more the bad guy's really coming. This guy is really toast if these guys are not going to help him, this Samaritan, he's a scoundrel. Here's the reason why. The Jewish people just despised and hated Samaritans. It was a racial thing. It was a cultural thing. It was a religious thing. It was just everything you could do where they would have a reason to hate these people. They hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated them. So now they're thinking, oh boy, it's about to get really dark here for this guy. That's why I realized this Most likely was a true story because they would say, you just made that up, Jesus. There's no way a Samaritan could help. Jesus said a Samaritan came that way, and he gave a totally different response. Now, I like to say the Samaritan's response is the true character of a responsible traveler. You see, we're all traveling through life. Life is a journey. Now, we can travel irresponsibly or we can be a responsible traveler. And he was the responsible traveler. What does it mean to go through life responsibly? First of all, let's look. It says, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he saw him. It means he looked at him. He really saw him. He really saw him. He was alert to the conditions of others. He was even alert to the reality of others. You know how many people are invisible to a lot of folks in our society? How many people they just walk by and never even acknowledge their existence? You know, a lot of times when I'm in a hospital and I see the custodian, the poor little girl that's mopping the floor, a lot of times I will make sure and stop and greet them and make eye contact and it just brightens them up because I've watched, and I've watched how many people walk by these people and they treat them like they're a piece of furniture and never even look at them, never even talk to them. A lot of times when we go to soar some of these other places I see these guys working in the in the hotels I see maybe the cleaning people I see the poor guy that's, that's pushing that luggage cart and all and I'll make eye contact and start talking to him or the clerk at the uh, at the at the all night convenience store that's been on their feet all day and and you don't even make contact sometimes a lot of people we don't even see they're invisible to us this man saw the guy and they saw His need. He was alert to the conditions of others and then he had a heart of compassion. Now, the word compassion means to feel with. He felt the pain that he had. So, that means it's going to involve the heart to be a responsible traveler. As I said earlier, we're surrounded by a lot of people who life has just beat them up. And we'll encounter them every day. What are we going to do with this opportunity? Well, this man saw him. And he felt him, and he was generous with his resources as much as he could. There was a limit to what he could do, but here's what he did. He said he bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Oil and wine were used. Those were the medicines. The wine would disinfect it because it was disinfectant, and the oil would stop the blood flow and soften the scar. That's what they'd do. He knew what he was doing. He had some knowledge up here. And he bandages his wounds. You think that he had bandages with him. Well, he bandages his wounds with his clothes, something that he had handy. So we realize he's a man made a sacrifice. And it says this, and he put him on his own animal. He had to walk. It took some effort to finish his journey because he now had this man on his own animal. So it was inconvenient for him. To do the right thing and to respond to the needs of others It's gonna be inconvenient sometime. You know what it's gonna do? It's gonna interrupt our schedule. And it interrupted his schedule. And then it says he brought him to the inn and Ted said that to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll pay you. He took out two coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Now, he's already poured in his oil and wine. He's already tore up his clothes or got a robe or a turban or something, bandaged his wounds. So I put him on his animal, and he went to the hotel, and he said, he's your problem now. I'm just going to check in. I'm leaving him in the lobby. No, says he gave him two coins. Now, denarii, denarius was a day's wages for a common man. This is where it gets interesting. Scholars say that a denarius would take care of 12 rooms in your your common inn, and maybe they'd cost a little bit more since he was having to take care of him and feed him and so forth, but he gave him two of these. So two of these would probably take care of at least a week, even if you doubled up on on how much it cost. He took care of a week, a week. And... The characteristics of a responsible traveler, his credit was good. Where do you find that? It says, would you take care of him, please? And whatever you pay more, when I come back, I'll pay you. And the innkeeper believed him. Obviously, he was a frequent flyer. He had the little card with the points and stuff, you know, because he went there all the time. But he, he was there all the time. The innkeeper knew him. The innkeeper knew him and said, I can trust him. Is that you? Is that me? Can people trust us? Can people trust that we're going to do what we say we're going to do? Is this credit good? Now, I'm not talking so much about finances, although that is important. It is important. There's a resource we have in life called Trust capital. That is, how much can people trust us? And you squander it, it's hard to ever get it back. This guy had trust capital. So we understand he was honest in his dealings. Now, Jesus could have said this. Now, you tell me, Mr. Lawyer, who loved his neighbor? That's the question that he asked. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? But no, he said it this way: Who was the neighbor to him that got hurt? Ooh. You see, he was wanting to know who is my neighbor. That means he's analyzing the lives of others, and Jesus turned it back around, say, Who was the neighbor? In other words, maybe, Mr. Lawyer, you don't need to start, you don't need to be wasting your time to analyze who your neighbor is and spend your time being a neighbor. Quit trying to define your neighbor, and why not just be a neighbor, right? Why not be a neighbor? Jesus turned it right back on him. Now, all this is wonderful, but you don't want to miss another aspect of the parable. You see, when Jesus talked about the good Samaritan, we think he's talking about us. Well, there's another application, and the enemies of Christ did it for him. In the book of Rome, um, in the book of John chapter 8, verse 48, they told Jesus, didn't we tell you and rightfully say, you're a Samaritan? Now, they knew Jesus wasn't a Samaritan racially. They knew Jesus was a Jewish guy through and through. They knew his credentials. They knew he was not a Samaritan. You know what the word Samaritan was? It was a racial slur. It was a racial slur. So they looked at a man that was clearly not a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. So we understand they called him a Samaritan. By their own lips, the man in the parable is a picture of Jesus. Now, don't don't miss the picture. Here's a man. Laying on the side of the road. He'd been beat up bad. We don't know if he's conscious or not, but he very well could be conscious. I know we're conscious, even when we're beat up pretty bad with life. And here's the thing. Here's footsteps coming. And he's thinking, help's on the way. They just keep on going. Here's footsteps going. Help's on the way. Oh, they're getting closer. Keeps on going. Oh, man, he's about to lose some hope. People have disappointed him. These guys have hurt him. He's wounded. He's now disappointed. He's cynical. He's lost hope. Footprints come again. He's wondering, what's it going to be this time? And oh my, this man comes. He said, oh, let me help you with this. And he binds up his wounds and he puts in medicine. He said, oh, you don't have to walk. I'm going to put you on my animal. You just, you just take it easy. We're, we're going to take care of this. We, I've got you. I've got you. That's a picture of Jesus in us. Because we've all been the Samaritan. We've all been the priest and the Levite. But we've all been the guy that God beat up our life. Grief just knocks the wind out of us. People disappoint us and they hurt us. It knocks the wind out of us. We feel wounded. We feel like we're laying on the side of the road all beat up and scarred and And sometimes these things just disable us. We we just don't know what to do next. We don't know what the answer is. And so we're we're just stopped. Everybody else's life is going on, and their journey of life is going. We're just stopped. We're by the side of the road, and we're there. Help's on the way. Jesus is on the way. And that Samaritan came and just says, just when it looked like it was all hopeless, here comes help. That's what Jesus does for us. Whether it be a spiritual situation where you are just totally undone by your own decisions, and you're all beat up and scarred up and hurting, Jesus is on the way. Maybe it's something's going on in your world that just knocked the wind out of you. Help's on the way. Jesus is coming, and he wants to bind those wounds up, and he wants to carry you. He wants to say, I'm going to take care of you. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this together because I've stopped. That's Jesus. You see, what will I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the answer is, helps on the way. Jesus wants you to have that fulfilled life and take the brokenness that all of us have and the hurts that all of us have, and help us to have a fulfilled, purpose filled life. Who are we in this parable? We've been all of them, hadn't we? One guy's journey was affected by chance, three guys' journey was affected by choice. Our ch- journey is going to be affected today by choice. What will we do with what we heard this morning as we stand and sing? Uh